We're in Genesis 41, which means we are in the final stretch of Genesis. I know it's been a long time coming. Uh, we are getting there, and uh, there's only 50 chapters of Genesis, so we're getting real close. I will tell you, I spent a lot of time on this passage this week, and uh, there is nothing um, surprising in this chapter, right? Um, so if you're looking for some hidden Easter egg or something, there's not really a whole lot here because it's pretty straightforward. Uh, one thing you, you may want to note is uh, this is somewhat anticlimactic. Uh, you read this story and we're, we're, we're like, finally, Joseph has been exalted. That's what we've been waiting for. But what we find is, is it's, it's not actually what it is that we're looking for. It's, 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 it's a false climax, right? We think, you ever watch a movie and you think, oh, the movie's going to end right here? And then it just keeps going for another 40 minutes. That's Joseph, right? Because when you first read it, you think this is where the story should end. Because at the end of the, you know, at the seven years famine, Joseph's provided for everybody. And we think they all lived happily ever after. Well, actually, no, the story was set up for something quite different. So this is, this, this is to make you think that the story is ended, but it's not. Um, I was thinking of the story of, of Joseph's uh, rapid rise, literally, from overnight. He goes from, from being an enslaved prisoner to second in command. I was thinking of, of uh, America has in its history uh, quite a significant number of its presidents who started at the very bottom rung of society, uh, particularly socioeconomically, and just worked their way up. Um, Abraham Lincoln is, is perhaps the, the most famous one. Um, uh, James Garfield is one of my favorites where he's just very, 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 very poor. Uh, we could even say Harry S. Truman would be another one. But uh, one story I was thinking of this week, certainly not the, the most extreme or the lowest to, to the high, nation's highest office, would be Jimmy Carter. I don't know if you're aware of the story. Maybe you are. Uh, he quit the Navy, uh, a pretty promising Navy career, just so he can run his family's peanut farm. Now, you already knew he was a peanut farmer because every commercial, I think probably, I wasn't there, but I'm guessing every commercial, you know, he's a peanut farmer, right? And at this point, I'll take a peanut farmer over some of the options that we've, 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 we've had to choose. But, um, um, but, but he, 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 he chose to, to uh, leave behind a promising career to become just a lowly peanut farmer. And from that, I think his first elected office was like the Board of Education, something like that. And it's just rising from, from there. It's not an unusual story in the history of the world, but it's a surprising one in the story of Joseph because he was so low and the sudden rise is what is so striking. Let's start in the first eight verses. We see Pharaoh's dreams. Again, there's, there's, you've, you've read this. There's not going to be a whole lot that's going to be surprising to you. Verse one, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass and behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. Behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. He sent and called for all the magicians of, e of, of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Well, you see here that it has been two years since uh, Joseph interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. Remember, one of them was elevated 
And Joseph said, I need you to remember me. And chapter 40 ended with, he didn't remember Joseph, right? And we were just like, great. Uh, you know, he's, he's gonna be stuck down here. We're two years pass, nothing, right? That's just long enough for you to, to, to accept my circumstances are not going to change. Um, the language two years in the Hebrew literally means two years of days. It's an idiom of saying exactly two years. Remember that the cupbearer was elevated on Pharaoh's birthday. Two years exactly later, on Pharaoh's birthday, he has these dreams. Now, that's one way to ruin a good birthday, don't you think, right? Um, and he has these dreams, and he can't quite figure out what it is. Um, and at the center of the dreams is the Nile River. And the Nile River is the lifeblood of Egypt. In fact, uh, the Egyptians believed that Egypt was a gift of the Nile. That is, that, that the Nile was there and a gifted uh, the land of Egypt by which the Egyptians uh, dwell. The Nile was everything, so much so they, they, they had a goddess of the Nile. Her name is Hopi, I'm guessing. I'm guessing that's how you pronounce it. She was the god of the Nile. Um, and so uh, this dream lies uh, at the very center of that. And so, so you, you can get the Pharaoh understands there's, there's something going on in this dream that requires an interpretation. Because remember, he is considered a demagogue. And here you have... Uh, the very center of Egyptian identity. Um, is it under, under assault? What's, what's going on here? Why are there these, these sickly looking cows coming out of the Nile, right? Uh, and so uh, we get these two, two, two dreams. Uh, the first dream, verses two and four, out of the, the Nile come seven beautiful cows is, is the language. Um, they're called attractive. Uh, this is the same language used to describe several characters in Genesis. Uh, Sarah in Genesis 12, 11, remember the story? When they go down to Egypt, Abraham says, hey, tell them you're, you're my sister. She's described as beautiful. Uh, Leah, her eyes are described as weak, which means she's not very attractive. Rachel's described as beautiful uh, in, in, in comparison. And then Joseph in chapter 39, remember that Potiphar's wife saw Joseph as, we translate it handsome, but it's the same word here as beautiful. So you can see that, that this is the cream of the crop, right? Um, there was a very Kentucky thing um, at uh, the Capitol today. The uh, Department of Agriculture did a big thing. A lot of students came around the stage. Really cool. You got free ice cream and food too. That was cool. I didn't. I was busy. Some of us had to work, but um, a lot of the staff came in with ice cream. Uh, I was like, that, that that would be nice. But uh, um, uh, one of the things is they had a trailer with a cow in it, like a real live cow. And a big sign, I took a picture of it, says, don't pet the cow, right? You know, but they were doing demonstrations, you know, and all this, and, you know, uh, so it was very educational. Um, it was a good looking cow. Uh, I'm not an expert on cattle, but uh, grew up around them. Well, there's seven cows, which, which, which implies uh, a, a complete number, right? So that's not an accident. It speaks of abundance and health. Uh, by the way, I want you to note there, uh, verse two uh, of, of the reed grass, your translation may say something different. That is a, an Egyptian word, transliterated basically into Hebrew, and it shows up in, in other languages afterwards. I've, I've been trying to show these as, as often as I can. I, I think the reason that's important is if you're writing the story of Joseph 500 years later uh, and you're far away from the Egyptian culture, you will not be using Egyptian words unless the story was, it, its genesis was in Egypt or comes from an Egyptian. 
And I believe in uh, big Moses authorship, I believe in little Moses too, but, but I, I do believe there's a Moses uh, is, is influential in the story. So we would expect him to use Egyptian words. And here is one. It's, it's, it's an Egyptian word. Like I, I can't speak German. So if I were to write you know, a story, I wouldn't use German words. Unless, you know, it's Perfektenschlag from Dwight Schrute, you know, a made-up word or something like that. Because um, I don't know German. But if you saw actual German in, in it, you would think this guy may come from a German culture. And so, so we, we do see that. Well, um, in verse 3, you get the seven bad cows. So now you have 14, right? Derivative of, of seven. And at that point, he wakes up. It's the middle of the night, right? I'm an insomniac. I get this almost every night. In fact, this morning, I woke up. And I, I just assumed it was 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. I get up to go to the restroom and my wife is in the shower. And I'm like, oh, I did sleep good last night. It's only 6.30, right? <laughs> that was nice. That never happens. I just assumed it was three o'clock in the morning. Um, but in verse four, seven bad cows. It's, it's the word used of the tree of knowledge of, of good and bad, good and evil. These are bad cows. And, um, and after they come out of the Nile, he wakes up finally. And he's wondering what in the world is, is, is going on here. Then he has a second dream. Now, remember that the dreams come in sets. Joseph had two dreams with one meaning. In the prison, there were two dreams with two similar meanings or one similar meaning. And then um, here, Pharaoh has two dreams with one meaning. And the second dream, verses 5 to 7, mirrors the first. Now you have seven healthy ears of corn or, or uh, unhealthy ears of corn eating the seven healthy ears of corn, right? Um, and he wakes up from his dream. And he's troubled there in verse eight. And so he calls all the experts. Remember, this was a big business. You had experts on interpreting dreams. We talked about this last week. And the people he calls are the magicians and the wise men. Uh, I think that's interesting that um, first, the magicians there is another Egyptian loan word. It's not Hebrew, it's Egyptian. And so once again, you have the writer pulling from, he's bilingual, presumably, and um, these magicians, not these actual men, but this office will return in the story of Moses. You remember when Moses shows up uh, in his best Charlton Heston voice, let my people go, right? And, and Pharaoh's like, not on my watch, brah. And Moses says, okay, and he shows him a trick. You remember what Pharaoh does? He gets his magicians, these guys, to do the same thing. Um, so they, they show up later on. Um, but much as they can't interpret this dream, the magician story of Moses, their, uh, their, their snakes are lesser than, than Moses's. Then, of course, there are the wise men. Uh, these are the experts. They're, they're called to this. Well, they can't do it. That's a problem. They can't figure out what in the world is going on. Um, so it is in that context, the cupbearer, hearing Joseph's dream, or, or the Pharaoh's dreams, finally remembers Joseph. So picking up in verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servant and put me and the chief baker in custody of the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving interpretation to each man according to his dream. As he interpreted to us, so it came about, I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. You notice again that we don't need half that detail. He retells the story we just read. It's redundant. He'll do it again, by the way. And that is all, of course, for, for, for emphasis. Um, and so what you have here is the cupbearer telling the story from his perspective. And he, the, the event triggers a memory. We've all had that, right? 
Um, and so that's when, remember, he, he, he as a cupbearer, he's very influential in, uh, to Pharaoh. And so he'd be a trusted advisor. He says, well, I can tell you my story is when I, you had me down in prison, I had a dream, and the dream was fulfilled. So I, I think there's a guy you ought to talk to. I know a guy. And that picks up in verse 14. When Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, they quickly brought him out of the pit. Is that what your translation says? Dungeon. Dungeon. Okay. Yeah. The word is pit. It's the same word uh, used in earlier when he was thrown into the uh, um, cistern. And it, it's, it's the word used uh, to describe death. Remember, we, we, we've talked about this a thousand times. Joseph, we are to view him um, dead, right? He's lost everything. His father and brothers view him as dead. His father thinks he is dead. And so just when we think he's made it out of the pits and he rises in the household of Potiphar, he is sent back down into the grave. And so Pharaoh says, get him out of the pit, right? That language is, is important. And when he had shaved himself, changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream. There was one who can interpret it. There's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Um, and then Pharaoh proceeds to explain his dream. I don't want to just reread it. It's the same thing again for, for emphasis. I want you to notice a couple things. Um, uh, uh, when Joseph is summoned, the language suggests he was summoned immediately. Like apparently Pharaoh was so upset. When word gets to him, there might be a guy to help him. He doesn't think twice. He sends immediately, bring this guy up before me. And notice what, what Pharaoh does. He first of all has him shaved. Now remember that, that we struggle with this because we're going thousands of years back. But Think of this in terms of, of, of racial distinctions. We've talked about this in the story of, of Joseph, the way Potiphar's wife described him as that Hebrew that Potiphar brought in my house, that slave, uh, has racial overtones. Hebrews were known by their long beards and long hair, right? That, that sort of stuff. Egyptians, if you think about it, every time you see an Egyptian depicted, they're shaved. And so, so you can cipher between an Egyptian and... Uh, a Hebrew pretty easily. Now, they were known as Asiatics because the term Asiatic became another term for slave, by the way. Um, but so the first thing they say is if you're going to stand before Pharaoh first, you smell like you've been in prison for a couple years. So we're going to shave you and then we're going to change your clothes. Look at the language there. Change his clothes. Once again, clothing plays an important role. You think of the story of Joseph. It begins with a coat of many colors, which is then ripped off of him. He then is re-rowed by Potiphar, which is ripped off of him by Potiphar's wife. Remember, she's holding on to it, or she, she lays it beside her on the bed because Joseph wouldn't lay beside her on the bed. Now, once again, he is re-robed. And this robe will not be removed. Right? Um, so that, that just plays such an important role in, in the story. It, it, it implies a type of exaltation. He's, he's going to stand in front of a Pharaoh. Um, and you'll notice that, that Pharaoh wants to credit Joseph with being a good interpreter. Joseph's answer is, I don't do nothing. God gives the interpretation. I repeat what he says. In a nutshell, what you have is the definition of a prophet in the Bible. Prophets do not speak for themselves. They speak the words of God.
which is why one of the most common phrases in the Old Testament is, thus says the Lord. A prophet is one who speaks the word of God. He is a conduit uh, for God to the people of God. And so here he's, he's restraining himself and he contrasts himself with the Egyptian magicians and the wise men, right? They want to take all the credit and they get paid for it. Um, and so Pharaoh retells his story, right? You, you get this. Is he's like, okay, I've told this a thousand times. Let me tell you one more time. Can you help me? And he retells the story as verses 17 to 24. That leads to Joseph's interpretation. Verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So again, three sets of, of dreams, they follow the same pattern. Um, the seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. So we, we, I, I did throw these up here uh, this week, but it's the same thing as last week. The, the pattern of interpreting dreams of Egyptian, of Egyptian dreams follows here, right? So you have uh, Pharaoh's going to see himself in it. Um, there's an allegorical interpretation. It protects the future, and there's some idioms in it, right? If it, in general, follows the same thing. So you see the allegory, the seven good ears of corn and the cows represent seven good years. Verse 27, the seven lean and ugly cows that came up from them are seven years. The seven empty years blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land, but after them there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. I want you to pause there because I, I didn't see this earlier. The repetition of the dream, that is, the, the, what happens is different, but it's the same events. Seven good cows followed by seven bad cows, and then you get seven good ears of corn followed by seven bad ears of corn. He says that repetition is to make it clear to Pharaoh this will happen. Now, remember that the story of Joseph hinges on three sets of, of, of dreams. The first set of dreams mirrors Pharaoh's dreams. So Joseph's dreams at the beginning mirrors Pharaoh's dreams. And what we have seen is that Joseph has proven he's good at interpreting them, which means the original dreams will happen. Joseph, Joseph can interpret them. The doubling it up means it is most certainly going to happen. So we, the reader, right? We're thinking, boy, Joseph's just had a rough life. Now we've been given information to say, okay, here it is. Joseph will be exalted. All the information has been given to us because those original dreams, it was a repetition of the same theme. You guys are going to bow down to me. There's two ways that was told, but it's the same story, okay? So pick up in verse 32, uh, and, or verse 33, rather. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, I love this, and set him over the land of Egypt. It's interesting, they're a wise man. Well, he has wise men around him, doesn't he? He ain't talking about them. If you can't interpret Pharaoh's dreams, can you be entrusted by Pharaoh to uh, institute the meaning of those dreams? Okay? I like that. Uh, verse 34, um, let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities. Let them keep it. 
That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Um, so, a uh, couple of things here. Um, the interpretation is pretty simple, right? We, we understand it's seven good years followed by seven bad years. So you have 14-year period. Joseph is, what, 30? Is that, is that what it was? He's 30, and um, the next 14 years are going to be dominated by, by, by this, this, this story. So um, what I love that he does that is unique to the other dreams is he doesn't just provide interpretation. He also provides an exhortation. He has the audacity to tell Pharaoh what he should do with the information. That's pretty bold. That's a bold move. And so his plan is pretty straightforward. First, he should um, uh, appoint an overseer, right? You need someone who their main job is to address this problem. And, and it's someone who needs to know, not in, in the good years, yes, they know it's good, but they know it's good to prepare us for the bad. And they need to have in mind, we've got to get through those seven bad years. And so this person has to be wise. Now, we don't have time to, to chase this, but Joseph is setting himself up as a better Adam. Uh, so someone who is wise, discerning, and makes good decisions for others. Uh, we, 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 Bible Project does a lot of good work, Donald, on this. Uh, really good work on, on this. Um, but um, what he is describing here is a Egyptian position called a vizier, which was a very powerful position in Egypt. This is basically the right-hand man of Pharaoh. We have a document uh, called the tomb of a guy I can't pronounce his name, right? I think that's what his Egyptian name means. Um, it's from the 18th dynasty, and it details the function of this role. Um, essentially, the vizier of Egypt was Pharaoh's right hand with limitless power. This particular vizier was head of agriculture, military, just everything, right? Uh, he had his hands in, in, in everything. Um, by the way, that guy served under Thutmoses III. Uh, he was overseer of the treasure, chief justice, chief of police, minister of war, secretary of interior and agriculture, and other positions. It's a very powerful position. And Joseph is saying, you need to appoint someone to that position. And their primary focus needs to be what to do about this, okay? And the second thing he says, empower the vizier to build a staff that will collect a one-fifth tax on the produce for uh, those seven years. And that tax, now the issue isn't that people are struggling, he's gonna take more, but that there will be an overabundance and you will take a fifth of that and then you will store that. So that when the seven years come of a famine, there will be uh, enough food to get through those, those seven years. Um, and what we see when, when, he, when he passes out the, the food, right? We haven't met the brothers yet. That'll come later. Um, is he actually has storehouses, not just in the capital city. He has overseers of each region or city. And so uh, like we, we, we would take ours to Frankfurt, Lexington, right? There's a region there. Um, in Breckenridge County, they'd probably go to Owensboro, right? There's, there's regions, so you don't all take it to one central location. It's, it's you're going to take it to your region, and under the authority of Joseph, those overseers will take care of that region, right? It's, it's, it's kind of common sense way of doing it, 
but we don't live in a common sense sort of way, uh, sort of world, right? Uh, it's, it's a good, good plan, right? Tax the abundance so that when there is no abundance, people can still eat later on, all right? Well, uh, as, as you know, I'm sure Pharaoh loves this idea, starting in verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments and fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath Paneah and he gave him in marriage to Asenoth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Wow, man, you talk about a change of fortunes, right? A um, few things to note here. Pharaoh is pleased. And um, now he's not pleased with the interpretation, right? Because it means bad news. But he is pleased in that he has an answer. I'm sure some of you have been in a situation where you know there's something wrong with you. You can take all the tests in the world and, and, and no doctor seems to know the answer. But when you finally do get an answer, even if it's bad news, it's better than no news. And that's Pharaoh. Well, now I know what to do. I know the problem I'm facing and I have a game plan of how, how to attack it. Um, and um, it's interesting. He describes Joseph as one who is wise and has the spirit of God. By the way, we, I've pointed out that the story of Daniel mirrors the story of Joseph. Nebuchadnezzar will say something similar. Um, chapter 5 of Daniel, I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. I think that's the writing on the wall that would be Belshazzar, not Nebuchadnezzar. But still, it's, it's the same language. So Joseph is appointed vizier. Here is a man who was enslaved. Now he is in charge. Uh, including of his own master, who's chief of the guard, right? He, 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 is, uh, uh, he is very powerful. He's described as discerning and wise. That is someone who can decipher between the good and the bad, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, again, there's, there's a lot of Adam language to use in the story of Joseph. We just haven't traced him. Um, and by the way, in verse 40, he's described that he will be over my house. That's the same language used to describe Joseph when he was under Potiphar. Remember, Joseph was in charge of Potiphar's house. You remember that Potiphar didn't even pay attention to what Joseph did because he was in charge of everything. Well, that's what Pharaoh's saying. Now, one of the lessons we, we've seen in this is that if you can't be trusted with a little, you'll never be trusted with a lot. This is one of the problems with, with young, ambitious men is, is often it's difficult to take the little job, to be a nobody. But if, if the company can't trust you with little responsibility, what are the chances they'll trust you with a lot of responsibility? It's, it's very rare. And Joseph learned that the hard way. He was kind of cocky with his brothers, right? It's one of the many reasons why he got thrown into the pit. But when he proved himself as a slave, yeah, he got thrown, thrown down there, but he proved himself again. Now he has this opportunity um, and he, he is well-trained, ready to go. 
Uh, but notice the ceremony, verses 41 and the 43, actually would go to 45 for our purposes. First of all, there's an announcement, right? I am Pharaoh, right? Uh, it's very clear. Uh, remember that Pharaoh's words were that of a god. So when he makes an announcement like this, it is done. He's given uh, Pharaoh's signet ring is, is used. Uh, that is another Egyptian loan word. Uh, so it's, an, it's clearly an Egyptian signet ring, Pharaoh's signet ring. Um, it, 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 it gives the decision authenticity and authority. Using it as an Egyptian word gives it even more authority. Um, uh, Pharaoh is putting his stamp of approval on it. Then, once again, there is a robe of fine linen. It just keeps popping up, doesn't it? And, and it is this robe that he is wearing when he meets his brothers and they don't recognize him. He's shaved, so he has no beard, has no, no head hair, and he is robed and they don't recognize him. And by this point, he probably speaks fluent Egyptian, not Hebrew. And that may mean a change in accent. It's been, you know, 20 years, uh, more than 20 years by the time they show up, even closer to 30. So um, they don't recognize him, but here he is, dressed in the sort of robe they ripped off of him. I mean, the Bible's a really well-written book. If you would just read it as a well-written book, um, it, 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 the way it tells the story, he's given a go chain. And finally, there is a ceremony. He, 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 he rides in Pharaoh's chariot. Chariot's a, a symbolic in, in Pharaoh's army. Of course, that's what gave the Egyptians a lot of uh, advantage in battle is the chariots. So they, they, they were overrun with horses and whatnot. Um, paraded around the city, um, now, notice here that the temptation is to think that Joseph's initial dreams have been fulfilled because people bow the knee. But the dream was not that he would be exalted that people would bow the knee, but that his brothers would bow the knee. This is why I call this an, uh, a, a false climax, because we're tempted to think, oh, finally, it's, they all lived happily ever after. No, the initial conflict of the story is his brothers. And Genesis is dominated by the narrative of brothers. And we haven't resolved that yet, but we're getting close. We're getting close. Um, so um, now the final act of exaltation in this story, verse 45, is he is given a new name and he is given a bride. Now, his name is Zaphonath Panea. Um, at least that's how I'm pretending it is, is pronounced. There are those who say we don't know what the name means. I am not an expert on Egyptian language or Hebrew. I took Hebrew, five semesters of it. Let me tell you, I don't know Hebrew, okay? I certainly don't know Egyptian, right? If Hebrew is tough, Egyptian is pictures, right? I mean, that's just unbelievable. Um, so there are those who say his name means God speaks and he lives. And the implication is, is, is it's a play on his, his exaltation, the interpretation of dreams. God has spoken and Israel lives or Egypt lives. So that's the idea. Others say, we have no idea what it means. It's Egyptian. And it could, I don't know if it's, it's a transliterated Egyptian word or if it's a Hebrew of, I don't know. I don't know. But take a word like Moses. If you read the story of Moses, and I were to ask you, what does Moses mean? You'll say, well, the text tells us it means one drawn out of the water. 
The Egyptian name of Moses means something else. In fact, I just read or mentioned a name, a guy by the name of Thut Moses, which means the Moses of Thut, the god Thut. What does Moses mean in that? Moses means son of. So in the story of Moses, it's a story of, of one who's drawn out of the water. It's, it's Noah language, uh, but we can cross that bridge another time. So it is that, that's the Hebrew side of it. But on the Egyptian side, the question for Moses is, whose son will he become? Is he a son of, 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 of Jacob? Is he a son of Pharaoh? Right? And so when Moses goes to the burning bush, God says, I'm sending you back to Egypt and bring my sons back to me, to a guy whose name means son of blank. Now, now in the Bible, that could be abbreviation. He could have had a more fuller name. I don't know. But there you have an Egyptian and Hebrew name working together. Maybe that's what you have with Joseph. I don't know. But he, he gets married. He marries an Egyptian girl. Now, some irony there, right? Who's the first Egyptian girl? I think it's the first Egyptian girl we meet. She was a slave of Abraham. Hagar. Hagar. So the Edomites have Egyptian blood in them. Two of the tribes of Israel, the half-tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, who we're about to meet, they have Egyptian blood in them. Come on, guys, that's cool. Abraham takes for himself an Egyptian slave. Joseph is a Hebrew slave who was given an Egyptian wife. Oh, it's just so good. So good, isn't it? Right? You, you remember, Genesis is broken down in sections. So what we've done is, is we open up with Abraham, we're closing with Joseph, and it's, it's an inclusio. Right, we end where we began. So good, it's just so good. It's almost like the Bible's written by God himself. Well, her name means belonging to the goddess Neat. Um, I made up that pronunciation. Uh, she is the daughter of someone named Potipharah. This is not Potiphar. Believe me, a few months ago, I was in the story of Joseph and I thought, never saw that. He's marrying his old, uh, like, that's cool. No, that's, that's not, that's not the same guy. Potiphar was a common name. Potipharah seems to be the full name here. Um, so you got a lot of Potiphar's like in Jesus day, you got a lot of Mary's, a lot of Simon's. They're just everywhere, right? Growing up, uh, my wife had a lot of Amanda's. In fact, I'll tell you the story. You ask her this, she'll tell you the story. Um, I used to be, um, I used to promote bands cause I was a nerd, a Christian bands. And one of them was Toby Mac cause I was a DC talk fan. And his first album came out. He was doing a uh, CD signing on the day of his release of his momentum album, his first solo album, which is very different than the way Toby Mac does now. Anyways, so we went all the way up to Wellspring Bookstore in Louisville. And I had the stickers and I had an early release of the CD and we bought another copy of it for my wife. And uh, so uh, I met him and I was just awestruck, Toby Mac. I mean, I just love DC Talk. And, and so my wife goes up there and he goes, uh, so what's your name? She says, my name's Amanda. He goes, oh, Amanda, there's a lot of them. And of course my wife goes, yeah, I get kind of tired of it. There's just too many Amandas. And he goes, oh, no, 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 don't get tired of it. My wife's name is Amanda. And she felt about that big, right? She's trying to make a good impression. And she, and she basically said, I hate your wife's name, right? <laughs> you know, so she felt awful about that. Well, there were Amandas everywhere. I mean, my sister's name Amanda. Jennifer. Jennifer's another one. There's about a thousand of them at the Capitol. Yep, <laughs> thousand of them. Um, yes, Jennifer's a good example. Mary's is another, another good example. So um, my senior year of youth, there were three Kyles in a youth group. I have never in his life been in the same room with more than two Kyles, and that is rare. 
Um, I had a, a, a dad helping me with a soccer team named Kyle, right? Um, so anyways, um, but this Potiphar is the priest of On. I get this. That is uh, a city known for producing seers and magicians who specialize in interpreting dreams. He is now in high-class society because that is a, that's a priestly row that was important because dreams were important um, and because they believe they were prophetic. And so this guy is really important. So Joseph is marrying into high-class society. Let's finish it out here, verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh, went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, he, uh, the earth produced uh, abundantly. That's Garden of Eden language. And he gathered up all the food of those seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, put the food in the cities. Again, it's Garden of Eden language. It's fruitfulness, right, uh, for, from the land. Um, he put it in every city, the food from the fields from it. So, so it isn't, again, it's not just in the capital, it's the whole region. So people have quick access to food. Verse 49, Joseph stored up great in grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea till he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Um, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. There is so much good there. We just don't have time. Uh, forgetfulness and fruitfulness. Aren't you glad you, your name isn't Manessa? Right? Oh, forgot about the middle kid. That's why we named him forgetful, right? Um, verse 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. The seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in all the lands of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, uh, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says uh, to do, do. So when famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sowed to the Egyptians for the famine was severe the land of, of, of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph the buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Okay. So I just briefly look a few, th a few things here. Um, Joseph is 30. His journey began when he was 17. 13 years later, um, the seven years start. So this is a 13-year journey plus a 14 years of administrating this, this process. Um, now, remember, Abraham had to wait 25 years before God, God answered his prayer. Joseph is, Joseph is going to wait even more before his brothers bow down before him. Um, you get the uh, days of famine. There's some irony here, right? When um, the land runs dry and is fruitless, Joseph uh, and his wife become fruitful. And in fact, the naming of Ephraim is to make the point clear. Remember, the pattern in Genesis is that God turns wildernesses into oases. He turns the desert into a garden, right? a grave into a garden, right? It's a song we sing, bones into armies. And we see that here. And remember, long, long, long time ago, we did a whole study of the Bible, particularly Genesis, of the word fruitful. Genesis plays with that term. It's a reference to agriculture. You, we want to have a, a fruitful crops, but it's also a term of the womb. Be fruitful and multiply. And we see that here. The land isn't fruitful, but God's people are fruitful nonetheless. What's going to happen later? Pharaoh is going to order that they stop being fruitful, but the people are fruitful. 
And so he, he causes a famine, if you will, to come. And what does God do? God blesses the fruit of, of their wombs. Well, Ephraim, fruitful, Manasseh, forgetful. Um, we see there the spiritual growth of Joseph, that God has brought him to a place of peace. So, so instead of letting bitterness consume him, this is Ruth's problem or Naomi's problem. She takes the name bitter, uh, Mara. He says, God has allowed me to forget my sufferings. Um, and that's, that's a blessing. That's healing, right? Uh, doesn't mean it didn't happen. But it means he's no longer gonna be defined by it. He's starting to see, you know what? God brought good out of a horrendous act of oppression and injustice. It took a long time, but God did it. Uh, and of course, fruitful. Um, he names him right before the famine comes. Um, and we do know that in the ancient Eastern world, famines, droughts for seven years was not uncommon. I mean, how long has the drought in the western part of the United States been going on? My entire adulthood? It seems like it, doesn't it? I mean, aren't they still finding bodies in like large lakes and rivers because there's just been no rain? And more recently with the rain uh, from the tropical storm, hurricane, whatever, the problem was the land is so dry it can't take water, right? I mean, how long has that been going on? See, it just seems like forever. Okay, what do we do with this story, right? Again, there's nothing surprising here, is there? You've, you've read the story a thousand times. You're well familiar with it. Uh, Joseph interprets the dreams. He gets, a, he gets a better job and he does a good job with it. A couple of things to note here. First of all, faith requires patience. You've heard me say this before. The story of Abraham illustrates this. As we already said, God gives Abraham a promise. You will have a son and you will be uh, the, the father of nations. And he's 75 when he gets that. 25 years later, he's not any younger. And he's like, God... Um, I think I'm running out of time. Chop, chop, right? Remember that in his impatience, which is itself an act of, um, of, of unfaithfulness, he takes matters into his own hands. Genesis, not to mention the rest of the Bible, shows that you cannot separate faith and patience, right? It's, 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 it's a marriage. You speak of one, you have to speak of the other. Impatience is an attitude of faithlessness. And one who is faithful is one who is also patient because things work on God's time. Another thing I want us to note here very briefly is government does play a role in society. Um, uh, you, may not, you may wish that wasn't the case, but you read the story and Joseph becomes, dare I say, a state worker, right? And, and God uses that to meet the needs of people in a time of crisis. We, we understand this. Um, if we had time, we could, we could chase this rabbit. Genesis has a very low view of the city. The first city we meet is Cain's city, Enoch. You remember that Cain murders his brother and he goes out and builds a city. And what are some of the other cities that we find? Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't see any good cities. And then at the end of the story, we find that when God's people rule in righteousness, the city can become a place of good. What is it that we get in the New Testaments? We get, in the Jewish mind, cities are bad. So much so that the city of Jerusalem will crucify the Messiah until the church rises. And where, where do Christians go? They target cities. They target particularly centers of, of, of political and economic power. Many of them are capitals. Jerusalem, Athens, Rome, those are capitals. They're economic centers, uh, philosophical centers like Athens, Paul targets cities. Um, 
So there, there is a role government plays and city plays. Thirdly, I've already mentioned this. If you're faithful in a little, you can be trusted with more. Jesus mentions that. The last thing I want to point out is Jesus is here. And it's kind of obvious. For one, we've already mentioned it. The story of Joseph is one of death and resurrection. Here is the resurrection part. But we, we, we've, we've talked about that. Um, I, want to know, I want to highlight a few of the uh, parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Uh, one, it's a story of death and exaltation. Secondly, they both possess the spirit of God. In chapter 41, verse 38, we read it. Pharaoh asked, can anyone like this man, uh, can we find anyone like this man who has the spirit of God? What is it that we find of Jesus? Luke chapter four, verse one, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the spirit in the wilderness. Acts chapter 10, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, so on and so forth. Um, I mean, Joseph, there's so many parallels between what Joseph did and who Jesus became. Both, I don't know if you notice this, both were about 30 when they started their ministry. So Joseph comes out of prison around the age of 30. Jesus comes out of the wilderness to start preaching when he's about 30. I don't think that's an accident. Um, Both men are called to go to, so one is Joseph, the other is the son of Joseph. People are told to go to him for life. So Pharaoh says, here is Joseph. Um, If you need bread, go to him. And here comes Jesus, roughly the same age, who is the son of Joseph. He's a true and better Joseph. And he is saying, if you are hungry, come to me. If you are thirsty, come to me. Both, we could say, are breads of life. Because the story we see with, with Jacob and his, and his sons are they are at the brink of starvation. The means of their salvation comes through Joseph. The means of salvation for us comes through Jesus, who presents himself as feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty. I don't think that's, that's an accident. But Jesus is here. Uh, which means that uh, whether in abundance or in famine, what we need is Jesus. He's the ultimate answer to this text. It's a pretty straightforward text, nothing fancy about it. But even then, we, we see Jesus. All right, so next week, um, his brothers show up, and the story slows down, right? Because it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that Joseph has found God's work in his sufferings, but when Joseph's brothers show up, those old wounds return. If only I can think of a good application, right? This is our story. All of us do this. There is someone in your life that if they were to show up right now, you're, you would emotionally change. You may lower your head. You may speak with a different tone. You may turn your back. You may move to a different pew. You may step out a little bit because all those emotions are coming back. Joseph has to deal with that. Forgiveness is really important. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. How about we close out in prayer? Danny and them are traveling. We should have prayed for them. And uh, Don's not here, Don Lewis. That's why it's been so quiet. So that means, uh, Don Douglas, will you close us in prayer?